Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Let's talk about Metro's raging gang war. We've had, what, about a dozen shootings here in the last month, seven fatalities. Uh, One of the latest victims, a 23-year-old man shot to death at the Market Crossing shopping complex in Burnaby on Thursday night. Have a listen to this montage of some of the mayhem we've seen here. We continue to believe that uh, this is a targeted killing and that Mr. Dollywell was the intended victim. 20-year-old Bailey McKinney was shot dead near the basketball courts at Town Centre Park at around 6.30. 29-year-old Bikram Deet Randawa of Surrey worked at Fraser Regional Correctional Centre. The shooting is considered to be targeted. An innocent bystander was struck by a bullet during that brazen shooting in Burnaby on Saturday night. Sunday night shooting at YVR killing Carmen Grewal and the wild police pursuit that followed. Officers pulled the body of 23-year-old gangster Jazkir Calcat from the bullet-riddled BMW. Okay, let's discuss now with one of the best guests on this topic. Kim Bolin is the award-winning crime reporter at the Vancouver Sun, just awarded the World Press Freedom Lifetime Achievement Award for an amazing work on this beat. Kim, thanks a lot for coming on once again. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, let's talk about the uh, the latest hit here. That was in Burnaby on Thursday night, and once again, like another sort of brazen hit at a shopping mall, and some what some innocent people caught in the crossfire but did not die. Right? What can we? What can you tell us about the latest on this one? Well, I w- went out to the scene. It was uh, similar to the Coal Harbor one on April seventeenth. Lots of people around. Restaurant shooting you know, kind of uh, mid-evening, but people are still on the patios because, you know, they're trying to enjoy things as much as we can during, you know, COVID times. So um, these guys, uh, Mr. Calcutt, his girlfriend, and another associate had sort of parked there in the middle of this parking lot near the Cactus Club restaurant uh, off Marine Way and Burn Road in Burnaby. You know, there's a lot of shops and stores in this kind of strip mall with parking in the middle, uh, someone in a white SUV pulls up, and there were just tons of shots fired. It sounded mm. like more than 20. There's dash cam video of the shots. Calcat was shot dead. Uh, his girlfriend was shot in the arms and legs, and their associate was also shot and injured. So two survived, one dead. But I was talking to people that were, like, seated on the patio, and it was just chaos, like, They were throwing tables up like in the movies to hide behind the tables. There were children there. And while these guys weren't seated in the patio, the number of shots that were fired just made everyone in that vicinity feel like they could easily have died that night. Uh, Unbelievable. This is incredible. It sounds like it's almost like out of a movie, but it's just reality that's going on here. Jaskirt Calcat, as you mentioned, 23 years old the victim here and your sources tell you that he was a member of the brothers keepers gang is that right 
Yes, he was actually a very respected member of the Brothers Keepers, apparently made a lot of money for them in the drug trade. Uh, He already had two previous convictions, despite his young age, involving violence, uh, including this 2017 stabbing just before Christmas of someone who used to be in the Brothers Keepers gang. Now, he was involved in the overall um, altercation. He wasn't the actual stabber, but he was convicted of assault in that case. Then he was convicted of another assault. In fact, he was on uh, probation and conditions on the night that he was killed. Okay, Kim, what can you say about who's fighting who here? Like, who are the factions that are fighting each other? This guy was with the Brothers Keeper. What other gangs are involved in this conflict? Well, he was with the Brothers Keepers. My information is that he had some involvement, uh, maybe not direct, with the murder at the airport on Sunday. And that was a United Nations gang member uh, who was targeted. And as you know, we all still recall, that one was particularly brazen. Uh, the, the killer and at least one other person in the vehicle you know, fled. Police were chasing, and someone shot at police from that vehicle before they were able to get away. So uh, we know that the United Nations gang is in conflict uh, with the Brothers Keepers, but the Brothers Keepers have enemies also in what we call the Kang Red Scorpion group. Uh, In fact, that was sort of when we first got to know the Brothers Keepers. Uh, The Kangs were once with them back in 2017 after the murder of uh, Randy Kang and the wounding of Gary Kang in October of 2017. There was a split in that organization, and then they're believed to have had some involvement uh, with killing the leader of the Brothers Keepers at the time, Govinda Graywall, in a North Shore high-rise. So this tit-for-tat has been going on for a long period of time. It's a little bit more complicated now in that we also have other players that maybe don't have an identifiable gang but are involved in the drug trade, like the one in Burnaby uh, the night before the airport shooting where you had Tony DeLippi shot dead. Um, the person charged in that, both were involved in the drug trade in the downtown east side, though they wouldn't have had, you know, a specific named gang that they were affiliated with. Okay, speaking of Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin about some of the mayhem we're seeing on the streets of Metro Vancouver. Kim, you mentioned the that very brazen shooting outside of uh, Vancouver International Airport on May 9th, and 28-year-old man Carmen Graywall shot there in that one. Uh, and you mentioned this guy who was shot dead, the 23-year-old man who was shot dead in Burnaby on Thursday night. He had some connection to that, you think? Well, that's what my sources are telling me. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying he was the actual shooter, but I'll say he is believed to have had some involvement. These guys know. Oh. You know, they're, they're calling each other out on Instagram. Another very high-profile brother's keeper, uh, Nassim Mohammed, known as Little Man. He's the one that fled across the border uh, back at the end of January. He's posted things on his Instagram saying, you know, we're going to kill 100 people in retaliation for the Coal Harbor shooting of their leader or one of their leaders, um, Harb Dollywall, back on April 17th. So they're calling each other out. They're doing it in some instances by name, as if they know specifically who was involved in the murder the day or the week before. And yet these people uh, who are involved in the murders aren't charged yet. And the shooting continues. You know, they're they're marking their next person, and they're doing it in a wow. very public way in many instances. Because oh, you don't think it's over. More to come. I wish I could say it was over, Mike. Uh, fortunately, we had a relatively calm weekend, uh, but, you know, I don't think it's over. Yeah. Um, unless I know, we all know that police have really ramped up 
kind of their street patrols, their gang enforcement teams are out and about. So when things, when police are that visible in all the hot spots where, you know, these guys, they're like everyone else. They like to go to the nice restaurants for dinner. They want to find a nice patio during the pandemic, right? So, you know, police are making sure that they're, they have a very visible presence in so many of these areas. These guys do tend to back off a little bit. Uh, but having said that, it's not over. They have long memories when it comes to retaliation for someone in their organization. Okay, this hit in Burnaby on Thursday night. There was uh, two other people injured there, as you mentioned, including uh, what I think it was the girlfriend of one of the, the guy who was killed. Yes. Was right? Yeah, and was and she had a connection to the RCMP or something. Yeah, that was uh. pretty shocking to hear because uh, you know on one hand uh, we had. Sergeant Frank Jang of the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team say at a news conference that both she and the other man injured were known to police. Uh, my sources have told me she had been stopped previously in a vehicle uh, with a Brothers Keepers uh, fellow, pr- presumably her boyfriend, not sure. Uh, so she was known to police in that sense. And then we sort of learned as the day progressed that uh, she at one point worked in a very junior position, but still, she worked for the RCMP's Criminal Intelligence Center. And this is where all the information is shared about what's happening with gang violence on the Lower Main Line. So that was troubling. Uh, You know, I got them to confirm that, but they said she hadn't been there in over a year. Uh, We don't know how long she worked there. She was apparently casual. But, I mean, I know from sources that as of Friday, she was in the computer database as an employee there. And I was told that was just a glitch, that she wasn't purged from the system after she left. But uh, we need to ask some more questions about that, and I hope we get the opportunity to do so this week. Okay, speaking of Sergeant Frank Jang from IHIT, he had a news conference on Friday about what we're seeing. And here he is speaking. I thought he was. this was interesting where he said he doesn't like to call it a gang war. This will play a little bit of this, Cam, and then I'll get your take. Here's Sergeant Frank Jang. They waged war on us, the community, and all that is decent about our community when they opened fire in North Langley at a skating complex where there's a daycare putting young children and parents in danger. They put us in danger when they opened fire at a skate park in Coquitlam and at a shopping mall in Langley where parents and young children go to buy sporting goods and toys for birthday parties. And again, they waged war on us, the community, when they opened fire in a public place, such as Market Crossing, putting patrons who are simply enjoying an evening outside. Sergeant Frank Jang there from IHIT saying it's not a gang war, it's more of a war on the public. But your thoughts, Kim? Well, he doesn't like the media using the word gang war even to describe the way these guys are shooting at each other. There was another thing he said where, you know, something like, you know, people who go off to war to defend their country are honorable and we shouldn't associate this kind of violence with them. However, you know, what is going on now meets any sort of definition, uh, common sense definition of a gang war. They're shooting at each other. They're hunting each other. You know, they, they have an objective, which is to eliminate their enemy. And interestingly, in so many of the court cases I have covered related to this gang war, and it's a term I will use, uh, these guys themselves call it a war. I remember covering uh, part of the Cory Valley murder trial. He was a United Nations gang hitman convicted of a very brazen shooting in Langley outside a restaurant back in 2009. 
One of the key witnesses, a former gang member, testified uh, during the war, and then he continued. And it just hit me. Oh, my God, these guys see themselves as being at war, right? So, you know, I can appreciate what Sergeant Jang is saying. He's a a very, you know, compassionate person, and, um, you know, he really is trying to convey the horror of what's going on uh, to us in the media and, therefore, to the public. But, you know, we're talking semantics here. It is a gang war. Kim, thanks for your great work. It's always awesome to have you on the show here. Thanks a lot. Anytime, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the campaign to save school music programs now. Tonight in Victoria, the local school district considering significant budget cuts. The school district says they're facing a $7 million budget shortfall. They've got to cut spending to balance the books. On the chopping block... The middle school's band program, strings programs, choir programs. These are music programs that have been around for decades in the Victoria school system, facing potential elimination in a key budget vote coming up tonight. Now, the Victoria School District is not the only school board that is looking at a budget crunch and considering cuts to music programs. But people are fighting back. In Victoria, over a thousand people, yes, a thousand people, uh, took plate, uh, took part in protests on the weekend to protest these looming music program budget cuts in that city. Now we've covered this on the show before. Have a listen to this here now. This is Grace Bateman. She is in grade six and she was a guest on the show here a couple of weeks back. She's in the music program in her school. She's opposed to these budget cuts. And I asked her, why does she think the school board is trying to cut music programs? And here's what she told me. I think that because music is not one of the more um, core subjects like math or social studies, they think that it's okay to just cut that because it's not as, I guess, important, they think. Yeah, right. I agree. I think that's what maybe there's going through their minds. But you say it is important to you, right? And, and I'm sure to your your fellow students involved in music. I think it's very important. Okay, Grace Bateman there, grade six, one of the leaders of some of the protests we've seen to proposed music program budget cuts in Victoria. Like I said, other school districts looking at similar cuts. Let's discuss now with my guest, Carolyn Howe. Carolyn is the first vice president of the Greater Victoria Teachers Association. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi there. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about this fight to save music programs in Victoria schools? That sounds like a a lot of people uh, opposed to these cuts. Well, this has been a process with many twists and turns. And I would like to say that the music programs are part of it, but they're only about a million dollars worth of seven million dollars of cuts. So it's been a significant, significant impact on our community. Uh, We're looking at losing those very vital music programs. We're looking at losing educational assistance in the classroom, counseling time, food programs, early literacy, tons of things on the table. But... There's a twist, another twist. Uh, we've just learned this morning that our board has postponed the decision that mm. they're making tonight, and they're going to the ministry to request a special advisor to help review the process. Oh wow! So, okay, you're breaking yeah, news. Yeah. You're breaking news for us here. This is breaking this is good news. to hear. Yeah, no, yeah. that is that is very interesting. Um, you are a kindergarten teacher, and do you teach music to your kids? 
School? Well, I do, and I actually am not just a kindergarten teacher. My contract is that I teach uh, music, elementary music. I'm an elementary music specialist, wow, and cool. I teach kindergarten as well. And so uh, in the elementary music specialist piece, I think I really see how we use music as a thread to connect kids from one school to the next, from one program to the next, something I really do a lot as a music teacher when those kids hit grade five, because here in Victoria they head to middle school in grade six, yeah. Um, those those 10-year-olds are feeling nervous. They're about to leave their nest. <laughs> They're going to a bigger school, new people. They don't know what to expect. And one thing I really start doing every spring is talking about, oh, you're going to Central Middle School. Oh, Mrs. Ng, she's going to be your choir teacher. I heard her choir sing. You know, I start doing all of that kind of uh, prep to help get them excited and connected and knowing that there's a place to go next year. And uh, that that will be lost if we lose those programs. Right. Speaking of Carol and how Greater Victoria Teachers Association in here in the battle to save music in schools. Um, I got kids uh, who took music classes in, in schools when they were when they were growing up and it was really valuable to them and we enjoyed it as their parents and I think it was important to them as well. Could you could you talk a little bit about the importance of music for, for kids and their development, their confidence? Yeah, um, for sure, I could, being a music teacher. I, I think that people forget sometimes when something's working, why it's working. So the kids that participate in those programs, people often think they don't need support anymore because look how well they're doing. You know, those kids don't need our extra um, investment. They're great. They're fine. Let's go somewhere in another direction. But what music is doing is it a way that kids really learn to work together uh, supports mental health, it supports social-emotional development, and actually it also supports academics. And what's really interesting about the idea of cutting music programs is in this data-driven um, education scene we've found ourselves in, music is a program where the data has been collected. There's you know, lots of evidence that shows that kids who participate in music programs do better overall, and uh, yeah. that's because of what they get from those music programs. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting to hear your update there on this budget uh, impasse and that the Victoria School District postponing a budget vote tonight and then going to the ministry. What is your uh, analysis of that? I mean, do you think like sometimes when I hear school districts say, well, we're going to we're going to cut music programs or we got this band program we're going to cut. I sometimes wonder if it's a, a bluff uh, designed to put pressure on the government, put more money on the table. Like, what do you think is going on? I don't think it's been a bluff. I really think our district's been committed to this um, realignment process, yeah. but the community has pushed back hard. Yeah. So, uh, and I don't think they were expecting really the level of pushback that our community would would engage in. So, so yeah, not a bluff. I think that they were feeling pushed against a wall. They didn't know how to go. Of course, our trustees, they're politicians. They know that they need to get reelected. Um, right. What I'm a little bit concerned about is that. It, this approach to the special advisor could be a, a pressure valve release. Mm. Um, it could be a way of justifying and validating their budget process. I mean, they had the opportunity to, to go to that meeting tonight and vote down the budget and then request an advisor. That would have been a different approach than postponing and, and now asking for help. So we'll have mm. to wait and see, and the community is going to ha- have to push a little harder. Um, they need to stay engaged and and uh, keep keep going. 
Well, I think you're right about the community pushback here, and maybe they did underestimate the level of opposition to these cuts because the opposition in Victoria has been incredibly organized. The number of people who have come out in these protests, it's, it's unbelievable to see kids themselves engaged in protesting to save these programs. You've, got, you've even got David Foster, the uh, Grammy-winning musician, writing a letter to the school district opposed to these cuts. He went to school in Victoria, said the music program in his school set him on his path to uh, his career in music. So, yeah, there has been a lot of opposition, and maybe that took them by surprise. But do you think school districts are, when they look at these music programs, is it kind of like low-hanging fruit to, to cut? Like, is it an easy cut in the minds of some of these trustees? Yeah, it certainly yeah. is. And there's you know more to it than that. I mean, our music our school district um receives additional funding through the international student program and so that's several million dollars a year a year in many districts in the lower mainland and and Vancouver Island that r- get that funding. And so they can invest that in different ways. So they had made a conscious decision, you know, about 15 years ago, that they would invest some of that money into additional music program pra- programming at middle school because they saw the value for their students. But right now, they have this opportunity to shift directions. So um, by claiming this budget shortfall, we don't have these, these couple of million dollars from the ISP program. Um, we have to cut those programs because we have no choice. Now, in a couple of years, when that money rebounds, which we know it will, maybe even this September, in fact. Uh, now they have this money, this windfall. How do we now want to spend it? So I think it's, it's low-hanging fruit, for sure, those programs, but also yeah. it's part of an ideology and a, and a conscious choice. Right, and it's interesting to hear the international student funds. Uh, is that one of the reasons for the budget shortfall here, is that because of COVID, you don't have these international students now? So yeah. therefore the budget's cut, yeah. Yeah, and not just international students. Um, education is funded on a per-pupil uh, funding model, yeah. so you get funded for every student in your school. So our district's also predicting we'll have 350 fewer students uh, enrolled next year as enrolled pre-pandemic. Now, that makes no sense. Uh, we know those kids are coming back in September. Uh, we know the um, distance learning schools that they had enrolled in have laid off their staff because they're not anticipating that the kids will stay in distance learning. We know they're coming back to school. So predicting 350 fewer students, that also puts you into about a two, $3 million shortfall in your budget. So it is. It's a fun, there are funding issues happening, it's certain. Um, but how those funding uh, issues are being seized upon to change directions in our district, that's a really interesting question. Okay, we continue to follow it very closely. Thanks a lot for coming on today with your take on it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to talk about it. It's been a very fascinating process. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about cruise ships now. The cruise ship industry has been a tourism gold mine for British Columbia, especially in Vancouver and Victoria. But, of course, cruise ships banned from Canadian ports right now because of COVID-19. What about when the cruise ships start sailing again? Will it just go back to normal? Will the cruise ships stop in Vancouver and Victoria, Prince Rupert, Nanaimo? All those tourists getting off and spending money, billions of dollars this industry is worth to British Columbia. But check this out now. A bill just approved by the U.S. Senate would allow U.S. cruise ships to bypass Canadian ports. 
while the borders are closed. Could this have a devastating impact on the tourism industry in British Columbia? Let's discuss now with my guest, Barry Penner. Barry is the former Attorney General of British Columbia. He's now a legal advisor to the Cruise Lines International Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Barry, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Good to be here. Okay, let's talk about this bill that passed in the U.S. Senate. What would this bill do, and what is the threat to British Columbia here? Well, the status quo is that in the United States, there's a piece of legislation called the Passenger Vessel Services Act, and it requires essentially foreign stops if a cruise ship that is not built or flagged in the United States is carrying passengers between two U.S. ports. Right. So to paint a picture here, if a ship wants to go from Seattle to Alaska and back, and it's not built in the U.S., and virtually no modern cruise ships are, they're mostly built in Europe, uh, then it needs to have a foreign stop. And Canada just happens to be conveniently on the way to Alaska. And uh, that is what really started the cruise business for British Columbia. Cruise ships uh, either leaving from Vancouver to Alaska and back, because therefore it's got a foreign stop, or between Seattle and Alaska stopping in Victoria. And, yeah, and there no, are other ports. They'll, they'll sometimes call it Prince Rupert. Right. They've called on Nanaimo in the past. Uh, there's been hope for Campbell River. Uh, and occasionally uh, some uh, Holland America ships have called on Port Alberni. Right. And, of course, so now we've got a situation where, because of COVID-19, cruise ships are currently banned from Canadian ports. But the Americans, they want to start cruising again. Correct? Like, the, the U.S. cruise ship industry is still shut down, or have they started sailing again? Uh, cruises have resumed even since last fall in Europe and okay. uh, around Christmas time in Asia, around uh, Taiwan and out of Singapore. And there's also some activity in the South Pacific. Uh, but in the terms of the United States, uh, they're not currently sailing out of U.S. ports. Right. But the U.S. US Center for Disease Control uh, last month said that they want to work with the cruise industry to see a safe resumption by midsummer targeting midsummer for a resumption of cruise out of the United States. Okay, so we could see cruise ships sailing again as early as this summer. And what is that? So tell me about this bill that just passed in the US Senate now. That would this bill if it goes forward and becomes law, it would remove this requirement for these cruise ships to stop in British Columbia, correct? That's correct, at least yeah. on a temporary basis. Um, right. Uh, the uh, people in Alaska, the, the vast majority of their tourists and their tourism industry comes from cruise ships. Yeah. So with the prospect of cruise resuming the U.S., but not being able to get to Alaska because of this U.S. legislation requiring a foreign stop, i.e. Canada, and Canada saying, no, you can't stop here until at least February of 2022, which is what our federal government announced a couple months ago, uh, this, had people, this does have people in Alaska very concerned about missing out on an opportunity and having two years in a row of uh, virtually no tourism. So uh, Senator Murkowski, the senior senator from Alaska, uh, and her colleague Dan Sullivan co-sponsored a bill in the U.S. Senate to exempt uh, the cruise ships from this requirement to have a foreign stop if they're right. sailing uh, up to Alaska. And... Uh, on Thursday, late Thursday, that bill passed unanimously wow. in the U.S. Senate, and our sources tell us it's likely heading to the House of Representatives as early as today. Wow. Okay, so it has to go to the House of Representatives, and then it would have to be signed by 
U.S. President Joe Biden to become law. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's difficult enough to predict what's happening with our political machinations, and so I'm not going to venture uh, uh, out and predict what will happen in the U.S. political system. Uh, but uh, the bill did pass unanimously in the Senate, so both Republicans and Democrats supporting the bill. Right. And it's now heading to the U.S. House of Representatives. Right. Well, if it's getting bipartisan support, I think that would probably increase the chances of, of a Democratic president signing signing the bill. So this is a, a grave threat to British Columbia. Would, would you say, I mean, right now, like you mentioned, it would just some people are saying, well, it's just temporary. Once we open our ports again and we open the borders again, the cruise ships, they would get rid of this law and the cruise ships would start stopping in Vancouver and Victoria again, would they not? It has created some discussion in the United States, which hasn't been happening that I'm aware of for a long time, uh, with debate on the Senate floor saying, why don't we get rid of that Passenger Vessel Services Act altogether? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's okay to do this temporary change, but maybe that act should be parked altogether. And that, Just make that it permanent. Okay. Make it permanent so they don't have to stop yeah. in B.C. at all. That's, that's the, the worry, the concern, right? Right. That, that's yeah. the danger. Whenever you open up a piece of legislation, you might think it's, you're just tinkering or it's temporary, but it puts a new focus on something that wasn't really a center stage uh, in the minds of U.S. politicians for a long time. Right. Speaking to Barry Penner, Cruise Lines International Association, if that did happen, if the cruise ships were started sailing again and they bypassed British Columbia, they stopped going into the Van- port of Vancouver, the port of Victoria, what, what would that mean? What kind of impact would that have on the uh, our tourism economy? Well, the, uh, as you likely know, the, the cruise sector for British Columbia is quite significant. Until COVID hit, it was supporting more than 17,000 jobs a year in British Columbia, yeah. generating $2.7 billion, that's with a B, billion in economic activity uh, across the province. The supply chain is very involved with cruising. It's a very intricate business, and it supports uh, industry across Canada with agricultural products from the prairies, for example, manufacturing components for repairs, uh, supplies locally in, in the lower mainland from agriculture and vegetables to milk and cheese and, and BC wine products. Um, so when the ships are leaving Vancouver and provisioning, that each turnaround, each time a ship leaves the port of Vancouver with supplies and with passengers, it's estimated that puts 3 to $4 million into the BC economy, every single sailing. And wow. up until last year, we were having hundreds of those sailings every year. And that cash machine came to a grinding halt, of course, as we know, with COVID last year. And that's understandable. Uh, but now other parts of the world are looking at resuming cruising. In fact, the United Kingdom, uh, cruising resumes today, I believe, um, around wow. the UK. So hmm. other places are operating already in Europe, as I mentioned. They've been operating even before vaccines were widely available. Uh, more than 400,000 people sailing on cruise ships since last fall. Uh, with no uh, significant incidents. So they've been able to manage even before vaccines uh, Uh, to prevent uh, outbreaks. And, um, of course, now vaccines are quite widely available, particularly in the United States, more so than here in Canada, but we're we're trying to catch up. Okay. This should be alarm bells going off, I think, in both levels of senior government here in Canada, I think that for the feds and the province, this is such an important tourism sector, especially for British Columbia, that I think our leaders should be very worried about this situation. 
I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem to be that way, though. Let me play this clip for you and get your thoughts. This is Premier John Horgan talking about this issue. Now, this is in March. Now, listen carefully to what he says here. He's asked about this bill, which, as you just heard, just passed the United States Senate unanimously. Horgan was asked about this bill in March, and here's what he said about it. This uh, proposed piece of legislation, and again, in the U.S. Congress, I think anyone who has spent any time watching the U.S. Congress knows that the likelihood of success on any number of endeavors is remote uh, in, in good times, much less in times of crisis. Okay, so he thought it was just remote that this would even go through. But yet, here we had the U.S. Senate pass it unanimously just the other day. I think Horgan had a bad read on this. Have a listen to this here. Now, this is Horgan again, again, speaking in March about the cruise ships being banned from B.C. waters. Here's what he said. I'm confident that this, uh, this blip along the way is a result of frustration, quite frankly, by uh, Alaska that, uh, that we, we're not having uh, ships stopping in Canadian ports for very good reasons. And I think uh, overwhelmingly British Columbians support that position. Okay, so he says that British, Columbia's over, British Columbians overwhelmingly support cruise ships being banned from our ports right now, Barry Penner. And he, and he also called it a blip. You know, so here he was saying he didn't think this law was going to go forward anyway, and it's just a blip. What do you think of his read on this? Well, again, you know, it's difficult to predict uh, the vagaries of the U.S. political system. But I have learned one thing, and that is not to underestimate Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. I had an opportunity to work with her a number of years ago when I was a legislator in B.C., and she was just starting out as a state legislator in Alaska. And I've now, now seen her work when I've been down in Washington, D.C., seeing her work behind the scenes across the aisle she has very good relationships with people on both sides of the aisle and uh, this yeah. accomplishment of hers to get this bill passed unanimously with the support of her colleague dan sullivan um, indicates again that senator murkowski has been underestimated uh, by many people in the united states including donald trump too many times um, anyway she's she's been quite successful in uh, getting herself reelected in Alaska, even as a male, pardon me, a write-in candidate. Uh, she was not the official well, nominee in one election, and yet the people of Alaska wrote her name on the ballot, got her elected. Right. Well, that's why I think this is such a grave threat to this industry and all the money it provides uh, to British Columbia uh, tourism. Oh, I think the politicians should be taking it more, more seriously. Last question for you, Barry Penner. Like, a lot of people, you heard the Premier John Horgan say there that British Columbians overwhelmingly support the ban on cruising right now. I mean, for you as a guy who represents the cruise line industry, and, and I know this is kind of a labor of love for you because, you know, you really and you really enjoy this industry yourself. Like, would you go on a cruise ship right now? Like, if, if they said, all right, we're allowed to go cruising again, would you be willing to get back on a cruise ship and take a cruise vacation? If uh, they were following the protocols that are in place, and yeah. uh, including vaccinations, if people are fully vaccinated, uh, yes, I would. Uh, but I'll just say this. I totally understand the apprehension, uh, given what's happened with COVID. It's a serious, obviously a very serious uh, crisis that struck the entire planet. Yeah. Um, so what the cruise lines have proposed as a workaround is what's known as technical stops. They're not asking to land ships and have passengers get ashore but in order to meet the technical requirements of that u.s legislation calling for a foreign stop 
uh, cruise lines have asked the government of Canada whether they could drop anchor for four hours just outside the port of Victoria, for example, and that would apparently meet the technical requirements of a foreign stop. So no one would get on or off, uh, but that would allow the ships to transit and get up to Alaska without having to amend that Passenger Vessel Services Act in the United States. Well, that sounds like a perfect compromise. What did the Fed say to that idea? They, they tell us that they want to know what the province of British Columbia thinks and that oh. they're taking uh, significant guidance from the province about what they want. So although shipping is federally regulated under Canada's constitution, uh, the Transport Canada and Health Canada are looking back at British Columbia asking for input. Okay, it's an issue we continue to follow very closely. Barry Penner, thanks a lot for coming on today. You're very welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. The warm weather is returning to Metro Vancouver. Summertime is just around the corner. And with the warm weather comes the motorcycles, the joy riders, the weekend warriors, and the extra loud modified engines that you can hear from blocks away. Now, this really bugs some people, including some of our listeners who have contacted me in the last few weeks fuming about extra loud motorcycles and modified car engines that sound something like this. Yeah. Get up on the highway. Yeah. That can be really loud. Okay, everybody's probably heard stuff like that, right? Now, I've talked to motorcycles who say, look, one of the reasons I like to ride a Harley or an extra loud bike is because I want people to know that I'm there. It's a safety issue. We want people to know that a motorcycle is coming. But do some of these vehicles, whether it's motorcycles or it's cars, souped-up cars, street rods, hot rods, are they modified to be extra loud illegally? Let's discuss with my guests now. Spencer Chandra Herbert, the long-serving NDP MLA for Vancouver West End. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Spencer, thanks for coming on. Glad to be with you, Mike. Okay, I get kind of deja vu on this one because I remember talking to you about this years ago. You've been on this one for a long time. Like, do you hear a lot about this in the West End, right, from your constituents? Uh, yeah, for folks in the West End, Cole Harbor, they contact me about it. But because folks know I care about it, I'm indeed I hear from folks all over the province. Uh, Okanagan, up north on the island, really, it doesn't matter where you go. There's people who don't think that they should have a, their eardrums assaulted by some guy who thinks he needs to be louder than everyone else. And, okay. and I agree, it, it, it's not right, and it shouldn't be allowed to stand. Okay, so can you describe the issue for me? Like, you know, when people are riding, like, an extra loud bike or a car, I mean, are there, are there rules and laws in place about how, how loud the engine can be? Yeah, there, there are a couple things going on. Um, yeah. There's a group of folks who think that they can go in and modify their tailpipes so they can be as loud as possible. That's illegal. You're not allowed to drive with modified tailpipes or without a tailpipe or an opening in your tailpipe. You have to drive with factory compliant uh, standard uh, tailpipes, but people get away with not doing that all the time. The other thing is that some vehicles, you can drive them in such a way that even if you have a factory issued tailpipe, you're driving so that your decibel level is higher than you're legally allowed to produce. So, you know, the guy that drives down Denman Street in first gear, but is punching the gas as much as he can, uh, those kinds of things. There's, 
it used to just be motorbikes, but now it's people without tailpipes, people without modified, you know, the, the Honda Civic with a modified tailpipe, or then the so-called supercars that rip down Georgia Street um, in second gear, but gunning it like they're in fifth. You know, they're, they're all problems, um, and they, you know, they do break the municipal bylaw, and they break the city bylaw, uh, the, the, the provincial law, but... You know, there was 24 tickets issued last year for excessive noise. So you can break the law, but there's not a lot of enforcement. Okay. How big of a problem is it really? Like probably everyone has heard like an extra loud car or a bike roll by, but it's usually not. Yeah, maybe in a bit of an assault on your ears, but it doesn't last that long. I mean, they're usually gone in a few seconds. Yeah. It it all depends on where you live. You know, if you uh, in a major city, lots of people stacked on top of each other and dense condos or apartment buildings you're waking up the whole building and if it's just you maybe that's one thing but you and then the next one and then the next one and then the next one uh, it is a problem i know folks have moved out of uh, major areas because they want to get away from the noise but i also hear it from the business owners you know the ones that we're all told go out and enjoy the patios this time of year uh, it's kind of hard to have a conversation if you got guys revving their trucks next to you so, you know, it's a, it's a matter of common sense in my mind. Just don't do it, folks. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my son points at them and laughs and says, there goes a fart bike, there goes a fart car, because he thinks <laughs> it sounds so stupid, right? Um, but for some reason, people think it's good. And, you know, to, to touch on that safety issue, yeah. folks say, oh, it's about loud pipes, they save lives. But no yeah. motorcycle association agrees with that. Nobody supports it because it's not scientifically sound. The, the sound goes behind you. But most of the impact that motorcyclists face is from in front of them. People don't see them coming. They don't hear the noise coming. They hear it behind them. Well, I mean, you can hear a Har- you can hear a Harley coming at you from down the street, can't you? Uh, if, if you're really listening for it, but you certainly can hear it behind it. So, you know, if you're worried about somebody hitting you from behind, sure, you can hear it. But what you can hear in front of you is a horn. You know, you, they can hear it. They can see a bright light. You know, that's what the, the major motorcycle associations argue for. Use your horn. Use a light. Don't use loud pipes because in some places in the States, it's actually got uh, motorbikes banned from downtown. Wow. Uh, people just say, you're not allowed to come here. Um, you know, Edmonton and a bunch of cities, they're now looking at noise cameras. That if you come oh. through breaking the law, they'll snap a picture of you, your license plate. They'll get a video of the sound and the level of, that you're at, and then they'll send you a ticket. Um, wow. You know, there's... It's happening all over the world now. Singapore, uh, the UK is looking at it uh, because the mental stress, it's actually been shown by the doctors to create real problems for people. Uh, you know, noise is not just a passing thing. It's next to air pollution uh, and, you know, pollution in your water. It's one of the worst forms of pollution in terms of stress and mental breakdowns. Okay, speaking to NDP MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert, noise cameras. Okay, so that would be a camera that's equipped with a microphone that would measure the decibel level of your vehicle, and if you go over a certain decibel level, it would t- snap a photo and send you a ticket? Yeah, that's what they've been yeah. testing out in Edmonton. <laughs> um, but, you know, folks can, uh, if, if you want to see if somebody's too loud or if you're too loud, you can download an app right now on your phone, and you can... Yeah put it up and record it and it'll give you a pretty good approximation of the decibel level you're at. Well, what's the uh, maximum? What's the loudest you can, you can run? Uh, I think a car is about an 82 decibel and I think a motorbike, I'm just going from memory, so I'll probably get it wrong, but I think it's around 87 in, in the UK and Europe. It's actually quite a bit lower. Their vehicle standards are, you know, quieter because most cars can be quieter. Um, 
folks are actually modifying to make them louder. I, you know, I passed a shop the other day. They had a sign on their uh, marquee that said, hate your neighbor. We do exhaust. So, you know, they were <laughs> inviting folks. If you really hate your neighbor, you can wake them all up by changing out your exhaust. Well, you know, that's pretty antisocial. It's, you know, if I'm riding my bike, should I get a loudspeaker to wake everybody up as I ride my bike through town so that I don't get hit? I don't think so. I would be pulled over pretty quick. Um, but somehow we've allowed that to continue with the motor vehicle. Okay. What about enforcement? Like the laws are on the books right now. It's illegal to run these illegally modified pipes and exhausts, right? That exceed the decibel level. So are you saying what the, the cops are just not writing enough tickets? Uh, you know, I, I understand where they're at cause they're busy doing other things. You know, a guy yeah. speeding, uh, and potentially killing somebody is going to be a higher priority than the, the loud car. Um, you know, so I get where they're at. I think Edmonton is looking at using bylaw and they're looking at this automated enforcement because the police have other things that they're dealing with. You know, we've got red light cameras. We've got speed cameras on the red light cameras. Some would argue that's a way to go and the cities are looking at it. You know, I've talked to city of Vancouver staff and counselors who are interested. Um, other places have looked at things like saying we should just make it illegal to modify the pipes in the store that you go to, to do it. Because it's kind of silly. You can, you can legally change out the pipe, but the minute you're out on the street driving it, you're breaking the law. Well, that doesn't right. make much sense. Okay, um, do you, do you, you know. support these, uh, do you support these uh, sound cameras? I'm looking at the research out of Edmonton and the UK to see if, do they work? Do, are they indiscriminate? Are they fair? Are they not fair? Um, and where would you use them? Uh, you, you need to make sure that people know what's going on. Uh, so that they know that, yeah, there is a penalty because for a long time there has been no penalties. Okay, um, so you don't rule you don't rule out supporting like these noise cameras then. I, I'm interested. You know, I, okay. I think there's a, uh, there's a strong case to be made, but you know, citizen enforcement, uh, public education that goes part of the way. Dealing with the installation of the pieces that goes part of the way. There's no one perfect solution here. Okay, and and you mentioned briefly a ban, a potential ban on on these on vehicles and loud bikes. Would you support that? Uh, let's say in the West End. You know, I I'd rather get at it uh, by actually dealing with the noise itself. Because you know, if you just say don't come to the West End, well, where are they going to go to Yale Town? Uh, you know, where are they going to go to Commercial Drive? It's the same problem. I don't yeah. think it's a matter of just push the problem to another place. Um, you know, because that's. That tends to not work, and enforcement's difficult. What, you, somebody zips into the West End and then guns it across the Lionsgate Bridge? Now they're <laughs> in a different, different jurisdiction. Oh, you can't enforce the law. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I used to think this was an easy problem to solve. Uh, it's not proven as easy as I thought it was. You think it's, get, you think it's getting worse? I think so, because it's yeah. not just motorbikes anymore. It's, yeah. it's cars, it's trucks, it's, you know, people seem to think it's fair game to to be as obnoxious as possible. And I don't think that's how we should run a society. We should try and respect each other and, and the needs Correct. we have, you know, don't, don't make that kid on the street cry because you've decided to drive by as loudly as possible. Like, okay. It's just not okay. An interesting issue. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks so much, Mike. Have a good you, one. You bet. Thanks.